Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past episodes by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And please come and engage with us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. So today on the podcast, we have a reoccurring guest joining us. It's my husband, Kojin Bohannock. He's been on the show a few times before, and he's here now joining us. Hi, Kojin. Uh, hello, wife. Nice to see you and hear you and be at work with you. Yeah, we were joking that it's uh, bring your husband to work day for me here on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, and am I the only guest that has the distinction of being a reoccurring guest? Yeah, I think so. Well, I think Alistair Van Cleek has been on a couple of oh, times, yes. but, but yeah, you've been on now three times. Is this your fourth or third uh, appearance? Third, I think. Third? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Kojin's going to get into talking about some of the stuff that he's been working on uh, that's related to animal rights and theology. But the reason I brought him on early in the beginning here is that we have kind of a big announcement, a big announcement for us at least. We moved to Eugene, Oregon. And this is really big for us. We've both lived in Northern California for many, many years. For me, over 30 years. For, for you, Kojin, your whole life, right? Yeah, basically Marin County, Sonoma County. I did a brief stint in Las Vegas, but other than that, Northern California my whole life. Yeah, and you were born in Marin, right? Born in Marin, yeah, San Rafael. Yeah. When I was 10, I moved to Sonoma County and was there until I was my current age, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> well, until like two weeks ago, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is a big change for us, um, but there were just so many reasons to finally get out of our beloved California. We were we were priced out of the housing market in Sonoma County and moved to Sacramento, but we just we didn't love it there. It was it didn't it didn't feel like California to us. <laughs> it it felt a little bit more like Las Vegas actually. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean the summers were so hot and miserable. Uh, we missed the trees and the forest, and we've loved Eugene for many years. So we have finally joined the exodus out of California. So many people are leaving. It's it's sad, but but it was time. Yeah, and Eugene's a special place for us, too, because we first got together. Second got together. Is it second time? Second time got together. <laughs> and well, it was... I think it was when we kind of decided to go steady, right? When we decided to kind of really uh, be exclusive with each other. Well, I, in my mind, we were married after our first date, but I move quite, I'm, I'm quite a bit more <laughs> committed than most people. <laughs> We've gone together in, uh, in, in Camp Meeker, and then I went traveling, and I was uh, traveling across the country, living in a car with my brother for about two months. And then I came to Oregon Country Fair in Eugene, and lo and behold, there was the beautiful princess dancing in the forest uh, to Jules Graves. And that's when we... Uh, and that's when I think we really did solidify our relationship. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We both met up at the Oregon Country Fair, which is in Eugene. It's a kind of an annual artsy hippie fest that we love every summer in Eugene. And we met up there. That was 23 years ago. Yeah, 2000, 2000. In 2000, right. So 23 years ago, met up and and you had been traveling while we had dated and then you had left. And when we saw each other again, it was like, that's it. This, uh, I just, I, I knew, I knew you were the one that I well, did not want to let go ever again. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of obsessed with you the whole time I was traveling. I, You were all I thought about. I even wrote letters to you. I never mailed them, but um, well, it, it made me realize I'd, I'd gone across the country and seen so many different people and interacted in so many different places. And I realized just what an oddball I am and how very few people who are, are, are perfectly compatible with me. Well, really what I admired a lot about you was your, your integrity. You know, I was a very staunch Gandhian back then. You know, I refused to drive a car. I wouldn't buy new clothes. I didn't use showers. I didn't use soap products. I didn't use anything that was even slightly environmentally harmful. I was very, very, very staunch in my uh, ethics of non-consumption, veganism and non-consumption. And, you know, I've known, I'd known other vegans and people who were very principled that we ran in a pretty principled circle of people, um, you know, uh, sustainability, permaculturalists, and even vegans and animal rights activists. But there was just something about 
the force with which you brought uh, to your activism, the, the, the deep integrity that you had, the, the, the really deep ethic of non-consumption in addition to the veganism, what we might call in Sanskrit, a partigraha, in addition to ahimsa, non-violence. You know, that with you, it was really, really special and unique. And so as I was traveling across the country, I, I was meditating upon that. And I, I, I think I knew you were going to be at the Oregon Country Fair. And I just, yeah, I had, yeah, we had, we had planned I to meet up. Yeah, I think, yeah. And my, my, in my mind, I was just going to go and that was it. I was going to sweep you off of your feet and that was going to be the happily ever after. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and we vowed to come back every year to Eugene to visit the Oregon Country Fair ever since then in honor of that. But we didn't quite make good on that vow. Yeah, that's true. We, we promised to come back every year. And of course, that never that didn't happen. But we did. We did come back about maybe once every four years or so. Three, four years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And now finally, because we're both working from home, we can live wherever we want. We decided on Eugene, Oregon. We love this little place. It's super sweet. And um, I don't know, I feel I feel like my my forest fairy <laughs> self is able to kind of spread her wings again. Uh, so <laughs> that feels good. Yes, the forest fairy and I'm the gnome, the forest gnome. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Okay, we're silly. Uh, so yeah, and and you know, and I I appreciate what you said about me. That's very very sweet. I felt the same way about you. You know, when I was uh, dating around, and and I dated vegans, but you had this deeper uh, just commitment to 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 wanting a better world. You know, to to doing everything in your power on a personal level to not engage in the destruction of the world. And I loved that. It was so beautiful. So uh, yeah, hopefully we're, we're kind of a force together. <laughs> well, I was very, at that time, um, I was very, very into Gandhi. I'd been like probably spent two years reading everything I could find on Gandhi. And, you know, when Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world, it was Gandhi's belief that if even one person could live with perfect integrity, then they could change the entire world. And uh, he faulted himself. Gandhi faulted himself quite a bit for um, his lack of integrity, which is pretty intense considering, you know, how he lived. You know, he was very into underconsumption. He ate very little. He made his own clothes, you know, so as not to contribute to the uh, global capitalism of the British Empire. You know, he's very into uh, uh, non-consumption, but even he's found faults and um, oversights in his own integrity. And so he very much blamed himself for some of the failures of the independence movement. Uh, because he thought if he could just perfect his ethical integrity, his nonviolence, ahimsa, and his non-consumption, apartigraha in particular, then he could have the power to move the world and actually bring about a peaceful transition to Indian independence rather than the violent one that he had. So I'd been reading all of this Gandhi, and I too became determined as a young person full of idealism to uh, live the most perfect uh, life of integrity that I possibly could with the understanding that the austerity of that generates a spiritual power that you can use to transform the world. And that was very much my my MO at the time. When I was watching you, who had a very similar ethic, you know, you weren't buying anything uh, new, you were very much uh, everything organic, you know, uh, natural fibers, all of this kind of thing. I saw that and I and I and I often have joked, you know, spent the last 25 years making the joke that I married you because you were the closest person to Gandhi that I had ever met. <laughs> well, I take that as a huge compliment. So so Kojin, I invited you on today because you have been doing some really interesting work recently regarding animal rights and theology. Of course, you are a theologian, you are a professor of uh, Dharma studies, and I wanted you to share with our listeners what you've been up to. So I'll get into your bio here just a bit. You've been on the podcast before, but uh, but but not actually talking about the work you do. We've been talking about other things. So just a little about Kojin. 
Kojin Bohanik received his PhD in Dharma Studies from the Center for Dharma Studies at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. He holds a master's degree in Buddhist Studies from the Institute of Buddhist Studies at GTU as well. He is now an assistant professor at Arihanta Academy, which is a Jain college, and he'll be teaching Sanskrit at Claremont School of Theology in the fall. He has nearly two decades, actually it's more, more than two decades now, I think, of studying, practicing, and teaching a variety of Eastern religions, yoga, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, and he's translated Sanskrit uh, literature academically for over a decade. Uh, if there's anything else you want to add, you are welcome to, uh, but, but just starting broadly, why don't you describe to the listeners what you do as a scholar, which Eastern traditions you primarily research and, you know, what, what it is you do? Uh, okay. Yeah. So, um, well, my broader geographic field would be South Asia. That's what's commonly known as India. And the religions that are indigenous to South Asia, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, what we refer to as the Dharma traditions. So that's my field of study in general. Um, more specifically, uh, I'm in the philosophy of religions. Uh, so philosophy really deals with two main things. Ontology, what reality is. And then epistemology is how you know. So if you're going to say something is real, like God is real or the soul is real or something like that, then you have to answer how it is that you know that that's real. And so that's what I deal with philosophy of religion, uh, which also intersects quite a bit with ethics as well, too. Uh, then I'm also a linguist and a textualist. So um, I translate ancient texts, mostly Sanskrit, but I op operate in seven different languages. Let's see if I can name them all. Sanskrit, Bengali, Pali, Ardhamagadi, Gujarati, Hindi, and there's, I think there's at least one other one. Um, but I'm also what might be called a constructive theologian. And uh, constructive theology is when you take, you know, ancient teachings and you basically apply them to modern problems, right? So ancient religious traditions don't say anything about nuclear war. They don't say anything about the use of styrofoam. And they don't say anything about, you know, massive agricultural, industrial, you know, situations that we have today. So there are all these novel problems of the modern era. Um, and so as a constructive theologian, I, you know, endeavor to see how it is that ancient teachings can address the, the problems of the modern era. And so that's um, what I do as a constructive theologian, as a philosopher of religion. My master's degree was in uh, Buddhist studies, so I did quite a bit of that work with Buddhist studies, uh, pr primarily philosophy when I was in uh, Buddhist studies. Uh, but then I got my PhD in, in Hindu studies, where I focused on constructive theology and uh, eco-theology. Eco-theology being environmental theology. So this is you know, what, what various different world religions have to say about protecting the natural world and conservation uh, in the face of our modern ecocide, you know, the modern uh, destruction of nature. Um, so I was primarily an eco-theologian. I did a lot of that for my uh, ethics of my PhD dissertation. And then I also worked quite a bit with feminist eco-theology known as eco-feminism. Also, while I was a PhD student, I did quite a bit of research in the Jain tradition, um, and then in the process, I, I, I established a lot of good relationships with the Jain community. And so now I'm an assistant professor in Jain studies with Arihanta Academy. Currently, a lot of what I do has to do um, with constructive theology in both the Jain tradition, but also in the Hindu tradition, where I primarily operate in a type of Hinduism called Gaudiya Vaishnavism, which is a Bengali type of Hinduism. So I do constructive theology in both of those traditions, primarily because those are my two main specialties. Of course, then, you know, if we follow the eco-theology, environmental ethics, that's where um, I get into animal rights. Yeah, yeah. And that that was my next question is how does uh, religion play uh, a part or what is the place of religion in the field of animal advocacy and and those that here that are longtime listeners you will have heard me talk about Jainism I'm sure because I taught a class on Jainism as well uh, so that's one of Kojin's area of expertise and as well my personal just I I have a deep connection and love of Jainism uh, as well as the Gaudiya Vaishnav tradition in the Hindu uh, tradition that he was talking about. So those are um, two uh, of these religions that are very close to 
our hearts. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's so interesting once you start digging in how there are through lines with these traditions that are very, very similar things that they all agree on, but some big differences too. It's, 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 uh, fascinating, but anyway, so, so, but getting into the animal advocacy piece, how do you see religion playing a part in animal advocacy? Well, yeah, it's, it's important. Um, it, religion has an important role um, with any systems of oppression and domination, systematic violence, uh, such as abuse to animals and animal exploitation. There's what we might call pillars of support for those systems of oppression. And pillars of support have to do with, you know, government structures, cultural ideas, you know, paradigms of worldviews that support those things. All these different things that support and uphold uh, oppressive paradigms, you know, structural violence. So as a social activist, one of the jobs that an activist has is to sort of remove and reconstruct those pillars of support. So if the pillars of support for systematic violence are addressed, like, for example, in the vegan movement, we have like a culinary pillar of support for uh, exploitation of animals, because people expect animals to die for their meals. So to remove that pillar of support, uh, we have now culinary activism, where uh, the transformation of culinary arts to be more plant-based and more vegan are now sort of removing that sort of that culinary system that was support and oppression. And we can see a very similar thing with government. We see it in art, we see it in music, we see it in a culture. And of course, a very important source of, of cultural paradigms is religion. So religion, just like any of these other pillars of support or any of these other fields of human endeavor, science, you know, academia, uh, religion, uh, you know, all of these politics, all of these fields of human endeavor, it's up to people who are socially conscious to try to reconstruct the paradigms, the, the systems of thought, the worldviews. Um, so the basic short answer is that religion can either uphold the exploitation of animals or it can challenge the exploitation of animals. And so as a constructive the uh, theologian, as an eco-theologian, as an animal rights theologian, it's up to me to show different ways that religious paradigms, religious ideas, texts, philosophies can reinforce an ethic of animal liberation rather than an ethic of uh, or, or a systematic uh, animal exploitation. And so that's really what theologians like myself are, are doing. And maybe getting specific to either Jainism or Hinduism, how do you see that kind of flowing through or applying? Yeah, really, one of the things that we would do is try to establish value relationships with animals to show how animals have have value, right? Because arguably, you care about that which you value. If you don't value something you don't care about, and you will protect and you'll fight for something that you value. So for example, anybody would fight to protect their children because they have a high degree of value. But if people don't value the lives of farm animals they've never met, then they're going to be indifferent. And they're not going to exert the same amount of care. So a lot of what I do as a, as a philosopher is I try to redistribute value to show how theological systems are sort of integrated with evaluation of, of animals. And, you know, they do this in Abrahamic traditions as well, too, Judaism and in Christianity to show how different ways that God values creation and values animals and therefore animals should not be killed. Um, it's a little harder because a lot of times in those Abrahamic traditions, uh, animals have a different status than humans. Like animals often are believed to not have a soul. So eco-theologians and animal rights theologians in those traditions have to sometimes demonstrate how it is that we should value animals despite their lack of a human soul, right? But that's not a problem in the uh, Dharma traditions because all three Dharma traditions, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, agree that humans and animals have the same ontological status. We are essentially the same. You can be reborn a human, an animal, or a plant because whatever it is that you are can, you know, is the same in a plant, an animal, or a human, right? That way we can establish that, that all living beings have value. And then we have to demonstrate how it is that that becomes a, a lived experience, right? How we apply that in daily life. And veganism is a pretty 
basic answer to that, you know, I mean, trying to um, apply environmental ethics in some ways can be a little bit harder. It's much more complex. You know, there's like the light bulbs, there's the gas efficiency of your car. There's, can you get solar panels? You know, how much can you realistically purchase less clothing and, you know, things like that. It's very, very, it, it can be very complex, but with um, animal rights theology, we have the advantage of having a much simpler solution, you know, don't eat and consume animal products. And so that would be the, like what we would call applied theology. So, yeah, I've, I've often said that veganism is kind of just a natural extension of ahimsa, the concept of ahimsa, nonviolence. It's already in the literature, right? That you don't kill animals. You uh, want to be as compassionate with your thoughts, your words, your deeds as much as possible. That's already throughout the literature. So veganism, extending it to not consuming animal products, because of course, dairy and eggs causes harm. We know that now and the animals suffer and die. So it's just a natural extension of, of these ancient traditions. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know that we've actually defined ahimsa yet. I think I said something earlier, um, but you know, the, well, uh, my, my, I think my listeners might know we've, we've talked you know, about they it know. before, but yeah. <laughs> Vegans in general seem pretty hip to the yeah. problem. Um, but uh, Jains, Buddhists, and Hindus all share like a list of ethics. This is what I call, uh, what I refer to as virtue ethics, right? The idea that to cultivate and develop yourself as a human being, to flourish as a human being, uh, you practice various different virtues, right? Um, and if you don't practice these virtues, you yourself will not flourish and not, will not realize your full potential. And that's the basic idea behind virtue ethics. You want to realize your uh, the full range of your, your potential. And the way that you do that is you do that by practicing virtue. And actually, the more you realize your potential, the more you become virtuous. So it's kind of a catch-22 in that sense. And so the uh, Dharma traditions share these set of virtue ethics. There's a whole bunch of different lists that are shared amongst the traditions. But one of them would be what the Jains call the Anuvratas or what the uh, uh, Hindus will call um, the Yamas or what are you know, known as like five precepts for Buddhists, even for Buddhist laity. And these are um, ahimsa, nonviolence, uh, satya, truthfulness, asteya, not stealing, uh, brahmacharya is uh, sexual restraint, you know, sexuality in such a way that doesn't cause violence. And then a part of the graha, which is consumerin, as little as possible. Um, and so these are ethics that are common to all of the, the Dharma traditions, and then they get uh, applied to various degrees. Now, uh, one common problem that ethicists are aware of is that when you have more than one ethic, there's a possibility that they could conflict with each other. So for example, what happens in some schools of Buddhism is they have a, an ethic of being equanimity and having no desire. So if somebody gives you something, you can't demonstrate a preference because if you've demonstrated a preference, then you demonstrate that you have a desire and desire is the cause of suffering. So if somebody gives you meat, you can't demonstrate a preference against it. So you have to accept it. And so then somebody might say, well, what about the ethic of ahimsa? So you have a situation where the ethic of nonviolence and the ethic of accepting something with mental equanimity, they've now come into conflict. And so what to do, which one to favor? And so uh, as an animal rights theologian, what has to happen constantly is that we have to show how that we will defer to the ethic of nonviolence to show that nonviolence is the highest ethic, or in Sanskrit, ahimsa paramo dharma, which is a refrain that's, that's shared by Buddhists, Hindus, and Jains alike. Ahimsa is the highest, nonviolence is the highest uh, ethic that we can have, and therefore any other ethics should really defer to nonviolence. So if I have a, uh, an ethic between telling the truth and an ethic between nonviolence, and if they conflict with each other, I should choose uh, nonviolence. And so that's what we do is we systematically go through the literature. And then uh, I construct what's called like a meta ethic is to show how the metaphysics of the system follow from that. And the metaphysics of the Dharma systems have to do with karma. You have an accumulation of karma that restricts the full potential of what you are, right? You have a potential for development that's far beyond what we've currently realized. And the reason why we haven't realized this is because it's been restricted by karma and karma occurs because pretty much any action we do 
there's violence somewhere on the supply chain. You know, uh, there's there's greater degrees and lesser degrees of violence, but all actions have some degree of violence in them. So we have to constantly try to uh, make the choices that have the least amount of violence so that we accumulate the least amount of karma because karma has an effect of restricting the full range of our inner potential. So we have to remove karma by removing violence, making the most nonviolent choices and actions that we can so that we can feel the full range of our potential. And the Dharma traditions will, will operate in a very similar way in that. So we have to analyze karma and say, what is the choice here that's going to create more violence or less violence? And to show that really when you're choosing animal products over plant products, you're always choosing violence over nonviolence. When you choose plant products over animal products, it's not that plants are completely absolved of violence, but comparatively, they have much less violence associated with them than plants. Yeah. And when you say potential, that we have this potential, a lot of times it's translated as happiness or, you know, having uh, equanimity, having um, contentment, joy, happiness, uh, living a, a fulfilled life. Uh, so it's not just potential. I don't know. I mean, I kind of want to uh, just open that up just a little bit more to what it is our goal is, what we're we're looking for uh, is really, I think, beyond just potential. Yeah. Well, let me, let me start moving into the Hindu and Jain paradigms a little bit more because Buddhists tend to be an outlier because they don't believe in an eternal, or some Buddhists, many Buddhists don't believe in an eternal soul. Um, so that's a different sense. But what happens with the Jain in the, in the Hindu traditions, remember there's very wide range of Jain traditions that completely disagree on many things. But what they do have in common with the Jains is that you do have an essence. And from the Hindu perspective, your essence is Satchit Ananda. You are what you're made out of is you're made out of just the very fact that you exist. You're made of a pure consciousness right? Which is a source of knowledge. So if consciousness is restricted, you have less knowledge. If conscious, consciousness is unrestricted, you have more knowledge. And then you're made up of ananda, which is, which is bliss. You're made up of happiness, which is why we don't need external consumption for happiness, because we are happiness within already. So there's nothing that external that you can get to make you happy. Quite the opposite. The external things that you get they usually cause some sort of violence on the supply chain, which creates more karma, which restricts the full expression of your essence, which is happiness. And so that's the Hindu uh, paradigm. It's almost identical with the Jains. And that with Jains, um, your essence is virya, is energy, right? So for example, you have infinite amount of energy within you, but the amount of karma you have is restricting the amount of energy you're able to feel and express. So if you suffer from depression or lethargy, that's a karmic restriction of that particular essential quality. You have a virya, right? You also have chaitanya, uh, which is consciousness, very much like the Hindu paradigm. And then you have sukha. You are made out of happiness. So the Jains and the Hindus pretty much agree on at least two of those factors that you are essentially consciousness and you're essentially happiness. And that essence could have a full range of expression beyond anything we can imagine. But because karma has restricted that expression, it is now a latent potential that is unrealized. So when we're talking about potentials, we're talking about what we essentially are and how to remove the restrictions of the full expression of what we essentially are. So potential is not something out there in the future that I can get. A potential is very much what I am at the core of my being right now that has been restricted uh, because of the karmic actions, the violence that I've committed inadvertently or knowingly throughout my consumption, my, my consumption. Yeah. Yeah. And what's so beautiful about that is that it's it's yet another reason to go vegan. Like when people are considering going vegan, you know, there's the reasons of, of course, the, the most important reason is the animals, the environment, but it all connects to our own well-being and our own happiness. And what is restricting your happiness is causing violence, right? And yeah. causing harm. Uh, and 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 it's interesting because I think vegans 
even not knowing any of this stuff, not knowing any of this philosophy or any of this, uh, the Dharma traditions, I think they come, a lot of vegans come to this realization just on their own, having lived a vegan life for an amount of time, you know, years in, you really, it, it starts, you start to feel this peace, this peace with yourself. You feel in line with your ethics. You feel that you're doing what you should be doing for this world and for others, for the animals. And that a happiness grows, a contentment grows inside. And so I think that that kind of happens naturally. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, there's various sort of daily proofs. I mean, you don't have to know hard philosophy. There's um, what we call common sense experience. Just the thing that we all know is that we feel good when we give, right? Mm. Well, that's the proof of karma. Uh, when you when you really uplift people around you, you notice that your own mood is uplifted. Well, that would be evidence of karma. And then um, I think it's a great strength of the karma model is that it does speak to uh, your own self-development as well, too. Sometimes it gets faulted that like somehow in ethics, we shouldn't be concerned with ourselves at all. We should be completely right. self-negating and yeah. only be alter-centric. Otherwise, it's not a real ethic. And OK, that's fine and ideal. But is that really going to inspire massive global change? Probably not. Like most people are like, what's in it for me? And that's not necessarily a weakness because we have to put on our oxygen mask before we put on somebody else's. Mm. That's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. And so the benefit uh, to the karma model is it really does show you that doing what good for others is doing good for yourself. And it demonstrates that very, very, very profoundly. And it is something that you can test in your own life and verify there's a certain verification that can happen there with the karmic proof. In one of my recent papers on Jane ecotheology uh, that I'd written, I had related uh, ecotheology and ecopsychology. It was something I did a little bit in my dissertation as well, too. But with ecopsychology, it's very similar in that sense, because the idea in ecopsychology is that we are most fulfilled when we have healthy relationships with nature, our mental health and our state of well-being is enhanced. Our potential for mental health is enhanced by our positive relationships with nature. I pointed out about nine different ways that we relate to nature that enhances our mental health. It wasn't something that I, it was something another eco-psychologist had written uh, that I was applying to the Jain tradition. But it's very similar with eco-psychology as it is with like Jain karma theory is because the, the same idea is that like we can have a very wholesome outlook on life. We can be happy. We can realize our potential for happiness and joy and meaning and purpose in life based on our positive relationships with the environment, but also on our positive relationships with other living beings more broadly, which of course, what is a natural environment? It's filled with living beings. And I think that that's really the strength of eco-psychology. And I think that that's really the strength of karma theory as well too, because both of them allows it to be okay to be concerned about putting your oxygen mask on first. It's okay if your altruism starts with your own self-care and that your self-care is completely interconnected and inextricable from the care of the others as well too. So it's a false binary to say that we're either alter-centric, you know, other-centered, or we're egocentric. That's a false binary. Actually, it's more of a dialectic care for ourselves is care for the other care for the other is care for this self we don't have to make a, a false binary there it's a both and solution there i love that yeah and it makes me think of really one of the overarching reasons that i wanted to move to eugene is all the nature you know the beautiful out every window of our new home we are looking at trees and the forest and i need that so much for my own self-care my own well-being i feel very much more connected to nature and and felt that we had gotten really far away from it in the suburbs and uh and yeah it just feels good and then i feel more energized i feel more able to function and I'll do more good, I believe, if I'm in a setting that does my heart good. Biophilia, right? Biophilia. Yeah, yeah, yeah explain biophilia. what that is. 
Well, it's very much the same as the um, as the eco psychology that I was um, using. Actually, I use biophilia and eco psychology when I do eco theology. Uh, but biophilia is pretty much the finding that we flourish best when we have a relationship with nature. You know, so yeah. um, and, and then eco psychology really confirms that. So and there's, I mean, I'm not that type of scholar, but people who operate in the hard sciences or social sciences, they have any amount of data to show this. There's studies where like even a picture of a natural setting in a prison will reduce violence in the prisons. There's uh, so many studies about if like you have an access to a window, you know, your uh, rates of depression are going to be lower, your productivity for work are higher. There's just like um, so many ways that that actually has been verified with tangible science that you have this positive relationship with nature and it allows for a better flourishing of your own potential. That's right. We are animals and animals are part of this earth and we've separated ourselves so much that we have to have those connections to the natural world for just to flourish, to thrive. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you said that. The we are animals is super important because um so much of uh human domination and human uh exceptionalism, the idea that humans are exceptional beings apart from other species, that has been used for the domination of nature and the exploitation of animals, human exceptionalism. But we reverse that by saying that humans are animals. And we realize that there's no clear species demarcation and that whatever faculties we have, animals also share in those faculties in varying degrees. The animals may have some faculties greater than ours, and we may have some faculties greater than theirs. It's not that we're um, the same because equality doesn't mean sameness, right? You can have equal equality among species doesn't mean they're the same. Equality amongst races doesn't mean that races are the same. Equality amongst genders doesn't mean genders are the same. You know, so quality doesn't mean sameness. So you can have equal rights among species and still acknowledge that there's varying different degrees of capacity. Well, that idea, and that was very much part of Darwin, of Darwinism. Charles Darwin was really the first person to say that humans are animals and to sort of rebuttal that oppressive paradigm of human exceptionalism. Now, it also is the same thing from the Dharma uh, traditions, from the perspective of Dharma traditions. The acknowledgement that humans can be reborn as animals is just another way of saying that humans are animals but also some of the more recent arguments I've been making is that animals are persons, right? And that animals are people. So we are animals, animals are people and breaking down that sort of distinction between species that uh, sort of upholds the oppressive paradigm, the pillar of support of oppression for speciesism. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's so one of the reasons I love the Dharma traditions and I was so drawn to the Dharma traditions is this equality amongst the species. And there unfortunately is that kind of human domination, humans being the higher in uh, the Western religions. And, you know, there's a lot of great uh, scholars and argumentation saying that that is just a reflection of society and not necessarily a reflection of the religion. Uh, but I was drawn to the Dharma traditions because of, you know, our equality with the animals being able to reincarnate as the animals and the, the soul being fluid through all species. I love that. And I love that you have been writing recently. I want to hear about this, about animal personhood. More and more, the language is changing with activists and sanctuary folks calling animals people. You'll hear sanctuary workers refer to their animals as the people or their, their people or this person. There's also legal arguments happening for animal personhood, for uh, there, there's lawyers that are arguing that, that specific animals, elephants, uh, chimpanzees that are in captivity in bad situations are persons and should have the rights of persons and personhood. Uh, so this is really a, a, an interesting area that you're kind of getting into. Tell us about this. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, I think you really touched on it is that ultimately this could have legal implications because if you have personhood, you have rights. If you have yeah. rights, then there are rights that other people can't violate. You're no longer an instrument for somebody else's use. 
which is the way animals currently are, is they're instruments for human use. They have only instrumental value rather than intrinsic value. For beings to have personhood is to say that they have rights, they have intrinsic value. Their purposes are their own, not in relationship to somebody else. And that's that's like classic animal rights theory from what we call deontological point of view. But ultimately, as the idea of, hu- of animal non-human personhood um, becomes accepted, it's more likely that these types of arguments will be accepted in courts of law. Um, right now, there are legal scholars who argue, from an animal rights point of view, whether animal personhood is always the best strategy in terms of animal protection legally, because there are a lot of cases where um, judges will uh, rule against animal personhood when there's evidence that judges might be more favorable to uh, arguments that favor human responsibility. You know, let's not get into the, from the judge's perspective, it'd be like, let's not get into an issue of whether they're people or not. The issue is whether the humans have responsibility over animals. And there may be some data that human responsibility arguments are, in some cases, at least more effective than human personhood arguments in the legal forum. That's not the weakness of the personhood argument. In my opinion, that's the lack of currency that the paradigm of animal personhood has in the culture in general. So in my opinion, just as an activist, I believe that the more the idea of human personhood pervades and is accepted by people, the more likely it'll be that judges will rule in favor of personhood because judges are like anybody else. They're influenced by the cultural milieu in which they operate. You know, if they're raised thinking that animals are people, it's gonna be very easy for them to rule later in life when they become judges that animal personhood implies intrinsic rights. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a complex issue, but really what you're seeing is this sort of dialectical relationship between the cultural paradigm of animal personhood and the uh, viability of legal arguments for animal personhood. And I'm of the opinion that very much the cultural paradigm is sort of uh, foundational to the success of the legal arguments. And so people like you who are creating forms of media that are uh, increasing the currency of the idea of animal personhood, that may not translate legally now, but 10, 20 years down the road, when that argument becomes much more current in society, you'll start seeing that as something that judges and juries and people will be able to accept much more readily. So some of the arguments of animal, non-human personhood, I should say, that I've been making, I, I make really two, one from a Hindu perspective. One of the things that animal rights thinkers or animal advocates who are scholars and philosophers do is they try to figure out some sort of criteria for what constitutes human personhood. You know, rational thinking, use of language, use of tools, emotions, uh, familial structures, any number of things that they say, these are the things that make a human being a person. And then they create an analogy where they say, oh, and by the way, look, animals have all of these things because getting back to what you said, humans are animals, right? Since they have similar capacities, then there's no basis for human exceptionalism. The more data we get about animals, the more we realize that human exceptionalism is completely misguided. Animals do a lot of the same stuff that we do. Different scholars will lean on different things, a various different set of criterion. But as a theologian, one of the things that I've done is used theocentric arguments from a Hindu perspective for animal personhood. And this uh, involves arguments where we see that animals have spirituality. And there's places in various different literatures and world literatures where animals will demonstrate a very deep sense of spirituality. In theistic traditions, you'll see animals turning their attention towards God, right? Where, where there's in certain senses, animals will have a greater spiritual capacity than even humans in those stories. Where in general Dharma traditions, it's accepted that the human life is the best life to get because we can sit around and ponder these types of spiritual questions. We have choices, like an animal, uh, a lion has to kill uh, a deer to eat. We don't. So human life is exceptional because we have a greater degree of choice, freedom, and the ability to sort of weigh that, right? Just in general. 
But there are plenty of exceptions in the literature where humans make the wrong choices despite our capacities, and animals will surprise us by making more spiritual choices. But really what is involved is that all beings have this sort of capacity to relate to a spiritual higher power. And that would be a theocentric argument for human personhood. So the idea is that we realize our personhood, which we all have inherently, as a potential, and we can realize that personhood in relationship to some sort of spiritual higher power. And because animals have that potential, whether they realize it in their animal life or future life when they're born as human, because they have that potential the same way humans do, that's sort of what I call theocentric orientation, the ability to have their full expression realize their full potential, realize in relationship to higher power, because animals have that, they too have personhood. So that sort of ability to realize a higher power just becomes one of the many sort of criteria for personhood that we can argue that gives uh, animals personhood. So that's an argument that I've made more recently from a theistic tradition in Hinduism, from the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition. Now, the Jain tradition is non-theistic, right? There is no uh, monotheistic God in the Jain tradition. So how do I make the argument of personhood there? Well, uh, in theistic traditions, uh, a lot of value is relationship to God is the source of all value, right? And because we are all God's creatures, we all have value. Because we all have the potential to realize God, we have value, which is basically what I just argued. Because we have the potential to realize God, we have personhood from theistic traditions. So what do I do with the non-theism of the Jain tradition? Well, with a theistic model, the source of all value is God or the divine. But a very uh, important thing happens with a non-theistic tradition like Jainism is that the source of all value is no longer external to the individual soul. That the highest form of value is not a God, but it's actually the soul of all living beings. Mm -hmm. In a way, when you don't have a theism, you don't have a God as the source of all value. You can look at the soul of each different being as the source of ultimate value. No being is valued in relationship to a God. There's no instrumental valuation. The sense of inherent worth of intrinsic value is stronger in a non-theistic tradition because you have that inherent value. In a sense, what you worship above everything is not a God, but it's the living force in every living being. And so that's a way that we can establish non-human personhood and other beings is that they are the ultimate source of value. To um, injure another soul becomes sacrilege. It becomes blasphemy. It becomes the most abhorrent thing you can do. For a, a lot of theistic traditions, the worst things, crimes that you can commit are sins against God. You know, for example, like the Quran, some of the worst sins are sins that are taken to be sins against God, right? But in a non-theistic tradition, since God, quote unquote, is the soul of all living beings, any violence is the worst sin that you can uh, commit. And that's how I argue for, you know, the personhood and, and the intrinsic value of, of living beings from the Jain non-theistic tradition. Beautiful. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I see that. I see the soul in every living being. When we have deer walking by our, our new home at uh, the window, you know, I feel it. I feel their intrinsic worth, their soul, and how tragic and horrible it would be to hurt them. Uh, and that extends to all animals. Uh, and in particular, farmed animals, because we are killing them by the billions. So, uh, yeah, it's very important, very important to see the worth, see their soul, see their life as uh, as as the most important thing to protect uh, and to uh, preserve. I love that. Yeah, yeah. And back to your, um, I think it was like your first question, what is the value of religion in all of this? Well, religion has existing structures of identity and culture, right? And identity and culture impels our action. It's very hard to have an ethic that isn't integrated in your identity and integrated in your culture. It's very hard for an ethic like that to be successful. Like it's you against the world. And if it's not in integrated in your own identity, then it's you against yourself. Like what do you do when you want to do the right thing, but all of your identity structures are telling you to do something else? It becomes very hard 
So really, in order for an ethic to be successful, it must be integrated within one's uh, identity and it must be integrated within one's culture. And patterns of identity and culture are pre-existent. They've been formed for thousands of years in religious traditions. So if we can show how the ethic operates for animal, animal benefit, operates within a religious structure, then you have an already existing identity structure and cultural structure, which is going to ensure the success of that idea in a way that's much deeper to the individual, much deeper to the culture, than if you just try to bring a foreign idea, foreign to somebody's identity or foreign to their culture and try to make it successful. If you show how the ethic is not foreign to your identity, it's not foreign to your culture, but it's actually part of it and it's been neglected, then it's more likely that idea, that animal ethic will be successful. And there I see is the value of being a animal rights eco-theologian. So I did want to ask you about interfaith dialogue and peace building, because I know this is something that you often write about, you speak about. I believe you uh, gave a presentation about this recently. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and relating that to furthering nonviolence towards animals, right? Interfaith dialogue, peace building, and the connection to animal advocacy. I think interfaith dialogue, just in terms of living in a society that, you know, is harmonious, is absolutely important, right? I mean, obviously we can see how disagreements between religions and a lack of understanding of the religious other creates a lot of conflict in the world. When people overstate that and say religion is the source of all violence. That's just not true. You know, struggle for power is the source of all violence, I would say. Yeah. People use religion as an instrument to that ends. And there have been very, very, very successful, violent paradigms uh, of non-religion as well, too. You know, uh, communism, for example, has been very, very successful, uh, often translated as a violent paradigm that's atheistic, you know, Stalin, Mao Zedong, and Pol Pot, and whoever else. So it's not that religion is unique in this way. But the more interfaith understanding there is, I mean, just the same way there's the more understanding you have between races or between genders, the more harmony you'll have. And so I think harmony, you know, just um, to speak to the interrelationships, the idea that systems of oppression and violence are mutually reinforcing. Misogyny is going to enforce racism, which is going to enforce animal exploitation, which is going to enforce destruction of the environment. Our, our paradigms of oppression and domination are mutually reinforcing. Uh, so, so too is religious intolerance. The disdain for the other, whether that's the religious other or the species other, is very much cut from the same cloth. So anytime we sort of break down the barrier of despising the other and rather celebrating diversity, diversity of human beings, but diversity of species as well, too. We're addressing that sort of underlying paradigm of othering and that sort of devaluation of those that are considered one's outgroup versus one's in-group. So, you know, in that sense, the, the sort of challenging of the paradigm of othering is important both for animal advocacy and for peace in society, uh, having a pluralistic society, a pluralistic society being a society that believes that diversity is a source of strength rather than a source of weakness. Diversity is something that we could cultivate. Even when we disagree, it's a source of strength. We don't want everybody to think the same. And so that's very important. But the other thing that happens with interfaith dialogue is you find this mutual inspiration what some scholars have called holy envy, right? Holy envy. The, the simple way of thinking about that is when you're of one religious tradition and you interact with another religious tradition and you say to yourself, wow, that tradition's so cool. I wish we had that in my tradition. And it's a beautiful place to be. And it doesn't have to be just religion, you know? You can be of a, a, any identity group and interact with a different identity group and think, wow, it's really cool that they have that. I wish that my group did too. It's a very nice uh, a way of uplifting and elevating the other rather than devaluing the other. And it's an acknowledgement. And that's what respect is. Respect is uplifting people around you. 
that's what happens when you have interfaith dialogue is you get this sort of sense that you find things in different traditions that you become envious of, envious in a good way, that you say, wow, how can we have more of this? Where I see this at the Graduate Theological Union quite a bit is, um, you know, I taught at the Hindu school there for, for several years, and we had so many Christian students who had this case of holy envy uh, for the divine feminine. You know, the divine feminine is very much part of Hindu traditions. You know, most Hindu traditions have a very strong sense of the divine feminine, which um, a lot of Abrahamic people feel is lacking in their tradition, you know, or needs to be better articulated. Maybe it's not lacking. Maybe it's there, but maybe it just needs to be better articulated. And they would come to the Hindu schools and they'd be like, wow, this is really cool that these Hindu traditions worship the goddess, that sense of holy envy. So what happens with these interfaith dialogues is that you, you get this sort of deep sense of inspiration of how you can be more spiritually fulfilled if you can sort of uh, embody some of these great ideas in other traditions. And what is the great idea of the Dharma traditions is arguably nonviolence, ahimsa, the same equality of species that we've been talking about, the intrinsic value of species, the same spiritual potential that all species have. That idea is a source for, I believe, holy envy from other traditions. And so interfaith dialogue is very important because we mutually inspire ourselves. And we tend to find with deep religious dialogue that there's a lot of disagreements. You know, Jains and Hindus will disagree on whether there's a monotheistic God or not. But yet they'll recognize each other as being deeply spiritually advanced people. For example, if I'm a Hindu, I can look at my own deficiencies and lackings and I can look at a Jain or I could look at a Christian or I could look at a Muslim and say, wow, that person is so much more spiritually advanced than I am. At a certain point, you, you, you don't really care so much about the theoretical models. Is there a God? Is there not a God? Is there an eternal soul? Is there not? Do we believe in eternal hell? Do we believe in reincarnation? That stuff starts to get like of secondary importance. And what becomes primary importance is that heart-to-heart -heart connection between practitioners where I can say, wow, I totally disagree with you theoretically on everything, but I can still somehow sense that you're spiritually advanced even beyond what maybe I have achieved, right? And that is really the beauty and the magic of interfaith dialogue. And that's when ideas do start to have this sort of currency where we can see this, like an idea like animal liberation taken hold of currency and being a source of religious envy where we can see other people like who isn't mesmerized by these deeply compassionate people i mean mahatma gandhi became mahatma gandhi because people were were absolutely astounded by the depth of his compassion mother teresa you can name any of the saints or the um religious people in any world religion and we can see saint francis valued for their deep sense of compassion. And that happens in the, in the interfaith dialogue as well, too. So you get a situation where a spiritual paradigm for nonviolence anywhere in any tradition can be influential on the spiritual paradigm for nonviolence in all religious traditions, because there is a common spiritual thread that we all have in every religious tradition. And even some people who are not part of religious traditions still have that same spiritual thread. All right. Well, you know, I love this stuff. I love hearing about this. I get to, I am lucky enough to get to hear you talk all day about this wonderful work you do. Thank you so much for uh, digging into this ancient, beautiful uh, religion and traditions to be able to bring it to the world. We do need to kind of wrap up though. So I want to end by asking you, Kojin, what gives you hope for the future? Well, I'd say it's exactly what I've been talking about is that I do believe that we all have a good essence. All people, all beings are essentially good. It's just a matter of whether that goodness has been given full expression or not. And if we create a conditions in society, an environment in society where people can flourish, that goodness will come out. So the goodness is already here. It just isn't expressing itself. I don't believe that people are bad. I believe that people are fundamentally great beings and have an immense potential for goodness. And I just come, come back to that 
all day, every day. And it's very hard to see people as bad or enemies or perpetrators or when you when you really believe in the essential goodness of humanity. <laughs> that is what I love about you so much. And you help me to offset my uh, my doubt, I guess, <laughs> at the goodness of the world. And, you know, I, I see so much suffering and it hurts me so deeply. And uh, it's it's hard for me sometimes to um, to find that goodness in humanity. And you you are always such a positive influence. You you love people. And you love this world, you love this planet and the animals and everything about it. And I love that you keep me positive and happy and laughing uh, because um, you just have such a beautiful outlook. Uh, so thank you for that. That helps me a great deal. And I believe that, you know, it is these Dharma traditions that has helped us both to make these realizations that we are inherently love, we are inherently good, we are inherently happy, loving beings. We just have to change the environment. Like you said, that we're in this human-centered paradigm that we've created so that we can thrive. I love that. Thank you so much for your positivity. Uh, it has helped me so much in my life. Well, thank you. And in turn, um, <laughs> you always remind me that positive attitude and good outlook is not enough, that we actually have to act. We actually have to do something. And I spend a lot of time in theoretical models and not as much time doing as I would like, whereas you are incessant in your action, in your activism. You are engaged with people in the world all the time. And so in that sense, I think that we have a really nice uh, a balance because you do need a balance between the theoretical and the practical. You know, the theory has to drive the practice, but without practice, theory is meaningless. So mm -hmm. if I'm the theoretical and you're the practical, without you, I'm meaningless. Um, mm -hmm. so, so thank you for, <laughs> for doing that. And that's, that's why I knew you were the one, because I knew that you would always get me out of my cloud of ideas and my world of abstraction and point me to the world and say, look, there's action here that needs to be taken as well, too. And I'm so grateful for that, the, that which you provide with me as well, too. So um, I think that we work we work well together in that way. Yeah, yeah. We balance each other wonderfully. It's true. Uh, we joke that I'm like Eeyore and you're like Tigger. <laughs> <laughs> kind of our, our personalities, uh, but, they, but they're good friends and work well together. So uh, Eeyore and Tigger love each other. <laughs> Yes, and I'm, I'm I'm constantly trying to bring out your tigger more. <laughs> yes, yes, you are, and I appreciate that. And you do. You make me laugh, and it's and we have so much fun together. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for taking the time to be with us on the podcast today, Kojin. It's been a lot of fun. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, I think our third one together. So yeah, yeah I really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, Kojin. All right. Bye, sweetheart. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. So you might remember that I taught a class, an online class last fall related to these issues. It was called Ahimsa Animal Advocacy and Veganism. And it was with Arihanta Academy. And if you want to learn more about this topic, and if you missed that class and maybe were interested, that class is now being offered in Arihanta's spring semester in what they call a self-study course. So it's the pre-recorded classes, and you listen to them at your own pace. So it's not a live class. So you don't have to commit to a day of the week or a time, but you can hear all six weeks of the classes. It's about 10 hours of content at your own pace and on your own time. And in this class, I go deep into animal advocacy, speciesism, farmed animal exploitation, and also Jainism and the concept of ahimsa and how it all relates. 
I hope you consider taking this class. It's really wonderful that they are offering this kind of self-study at your own pace version of my class, Ahimsa, Animal Advocacy, and Veganism. I'll have a link in the show notes to the website where you can go and get more information and register for Arihanta Academy's spring semester. I would also like to thank A Well-Fed World for their support of this podcast. A Well-Fed World generously gave Hope for the Animals podcast a grant recently, and we are very grateful. They do amazing work uh, working at the intersection of global hunger, climate change, and animal advocacy. They encourage plant-based eating globally to help everyone be well-fed, as their name implies. And they have a new program they just launched called the Planetary Pulses Project. Pulses, of course, are the very nutrient-dense legumes, beans and lentils, and they will be distributing pulse seeds around the globe. So be sure to learn more about them at their website. I'll put a link to that website in the show notes, and we thank A Well-Fed World for their support. So I want to have Kojin back on the show soon because coming up in the spring, I have a book coming out that I edited. It's an anthology with 18 contributing authors, and Kojin is one of those contributing authors. He has a chapter in the book. The book is called The Humane Hoax, Essays Exposing the Myth of Happy Meat, Humane Dairy, and Ethical Eggs. And Kojin wrote an essay for this book on spiritual bypass in do-it-yourself slaughter. So backyard slaughter and how they will often use spiritual language to justify what they're doing to animals to kind of rationalize harm with a false narrative that it's somehow spiritual to know the animal and to kill them yourself. Uh, it's a fascinating chapter in a really exciting book that I can't wait to share with you all. I will have several of the authors on the podcast after the book release in April. All have come at this issue of The Humane Hoax from many different angles, really, really interesting uh, chapters. So uh, that's something to look forward to. Thank you for your love and support of this podcast. Please share this episode and live vegan.